Thank you, Father, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel message. Thank you for the transforming power of your gospel. Indeed, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the peace and the calm that comes, and we can say it is well, knowing that our sin is carried by the Lord Jesus Christ once and for all as our sin bearer, and his righteousness imputed to us. Well, Father, thank you for mothers today as well. Thank you for all of the mothers here, their important work. Will you encourage their hearts today, calm their minds, help them to focus on Jesus, renew their strength, that they will run and not be weary, that they will walk and not faint. Father, we turn our attention to your word. Will you use it now? Use it as that sword to penetrate. Use it as that honing tool to conform and to mold. Build us up in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit our ears to hear. We commit our hearts to be humble. Father, we commit ourselves to a discipline of obedience as we leave from here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we'll not be turning to the book of Genesis, but will you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus? How's that? We're still in the Old Testament. I've had a number of things on my heart in preparation for uh, Mother's Day, and, and uh, will admit to you that I struggled knowing just how to bring it all together, and um, found as I pondered uh, Exodus chapter 2 and uh, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, uh, some, uh, a story and a passage for us from which we can leap to our present day culture and make some application to our lives. As you're turning there and getting ready to hear the word, can I take just a minute and invite all the mothers here to stand? Will all the mothers here stand? Let's just uh, acknowledge our mothers as Americans do when they're happy or whatever. Clap. <laughs> Thank you. You may be seated. All that is represented in these lives. What a, what a remarkable thing. And didn't God know what he was doing when he invented mom? I'll tell you. Can we take just a minute and honor three of our mothers here this morning? Let's do it quickly. How about our youngest mom? Who's the, who's the youngest? Um, uh, the mom with the youngest baby is what I want to say. The mother with the youngest baby. Is that you this morning, Nancy? Who has a, who has a baby six months or under? Is it just... Okay, and Nancy, we've already met her this morning. Nancy, one of these potted plants is for you when you depart this morning, okay? And the Lord bless you as you take care of baby Samuel. How old is he? He's seven weeks. All right. Well, you're a busy lady. How about the mom who's changed the most diapers this week? Can you quick calculate that? Eva has a daycare. We'll include that. We'll include that. You just want one of these plants, Eva. <laughs> Can you calculate quickly how many diapers you might have changed in this service? There's not as many young moms. Tasha, do you have any idea on a quick calculation? I was trying to get my daughter a potted plant. Not really. I just happened to think of that. Eva, how many diapers did you change this week? No, you can, you can be included. It counts. But you're, you're an important part in those babies' lives, right? 
Yeah, you wouldn't know what to do without them, and they wouldn't know what to do without you. God bless you. How, how many diapers have you changed this week, Tosh? <laughs> we don't need all the details. How many? Forty-three or forty-four diapers. That's a lot of diapers. Eva, how many do you calculate you've changed today? Not that many, but a lot. Anybody changed more than forty-three diapers this week? Barbara? Oh, I thought maybe you were something I didn't know or you were getting filled with the Spirit or something. All right, good. All right. Anybody else? Tasha, one of these plants belongs to you. All right? Good for you. And... Uh, that's our daughter Tasha who sang this morning. Pray for Tasha. She'll be relocating to Norfolk, Virginia soon as Denny comes in off the Dwight D. Eisenhower. Her husband is in the Persian Gulf on the aircraft carrier Dwight D. Eisenhower. And uh, sometimes I don't mention my own family as much for prayer needs as I do the congregation. But do pray for Tasha. She's, she's done well. One more. How about the... Uh, and I think that she'll be over 70 or 75 or 80, so... How about just the oldest mother who's with us today? You have to kind of give away your age, but generally when you get around 80, you start to get proud of your age, don't you? Who's the oldest mother? Is there a mother here 80 or older? Anybody 80 or older here? Glenda? Gloria, Gloria excuse me. 81. Any, any mom here older than 81? Well, Gloria, you get one of these potted plants. All right, good for you. Let's give them a hand, all of them. When the book of Genesis comes to a conclusion, it is the life of Joseph uh, with whom we will be dealing, and it's a long section. And uh, when Joseph uh, ends, do you remember that his brothers had sold him into slavery down into Egypt? Well, what happened was they relocated down there because of the famine and Joseph and his brother's families began to grow. Will you stand with me for a stretch a minute and let's read God's Word. We're going to begin with Exodus chapter 1 and verse 6 and we're going to read through chapter 2 verse 10. It's, a, it's easy to follow. It's an interesting story and I want you to see the significance of mothers in this passage. We're beginning with verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, they will fight against us, and they will leave our country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name, and I would take it only two, are mentioned, or maybe the leaders of the midwives, 
Obviously, there had to be more than two midwives handling this uh, population explosion among the Hebrew children. The Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. And so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw it in the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her, he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. May the Lord bless the reading of the word to us. You may be seated. I thought that it was interesting as I read this passage and as I reflected on some of the things that as a pastor on my heart to encourage mothers that there were some parallels, that there are some lessons in this passage. Let me suggest five lessons from this passage that apply to us today, particularly on the topic of motherhood and the significance of motherhood. Lesson number one that we see in this passage is that motherhood is under attack. Do you see that in the passage? Motherhood was under attack. Now in this passage, it was about a political uh, issue. It was, it was an economic issue and it was a, a military issue in the sense of the Israelites, as they populated, they were slaves. They were in forced labor. And um, we won't go into the detail for the sake of time of all that they did, but it's clear in the passage that they were worked ruthlessly. That's a, that's a tough word, isn't it? They worked, they worked them ruthlessly. And God in his sovereignty says, now is the time. And remember the promise way back with Abraham. We've been studying that, that their descendants would be numerous. And, and so they began to populate. And God granted his blessing upon them. And they just began to have babies right and left. 
It began to become a concern among the Egyptian leadership that soon the Israelites would be so great in number that they would outnumber the Egyptian uh, civilian population and even become such a force that if a neighboring country recognized that internally now there was a manpower that could be solicited to turn against them internally while they attacked externally, that they would fall. And so they had to come up with a strategy, and what they did was they went right at motherhood and the point of birth. They go to the Egyptian midwives. This is kind of an interesting thing. You can go over to Patrick Henry College sometime and go to Dr. Mitchell's philosophy class, and you can debate about the ethic of these midwives lying to Pharaoh and being blessed by God for it. Now, my answer to that is a surmising, because some of you might have caught that. Here they lied to Pharaoh. Is a Christian ever supposed to lie? We don't have time for that subject this morning. The short answer is no. I think that the midwives' strategy was to just not show up. And I think that there was some truth there, but then you get into all kinds of, well, what about partial truth? It's like when the babies were called, they were delayed coming, the babies were born. It's interesting in the passage, pick up Dr. Mitchell in the hallway, he'll discuss the rest of the ethical uh, implications with you on that. There are some interesting studies like that in Scripture, aren't they? That's not our topic this morning. It says in verse 16 that uh, when you observe the Hebrew children on the delivery stool, and evidently it was the practice of these Hebrews' wives, and I understand that this was a, a double stone stool, and they would deliver in somewhat of a sitting upright position. The midwives were directed by the leadership, the political leadership, that when it was a boy, when it was a male child, they were to see that that child did not live. Well, obviously, and um, with great understanding, we could relate to the, di the dilemma somewhat, but like Peter said in the New Testament Acts, right? I would rather serve God, I will obey God over men. And whenever men give me an instruction to do something that violates the standard of God, then forget the men, even at the cost of my own life. I will obey God over men. And that's what these midwives did, and that's why God honored them. Well, the boys are keep being born, and babies are being born, to the degree that that tri trick didn't work. And so they had, Pharaoh gave this order, verse 22, he gave this order to all his people. Okay, Egyptians everywhere, you had better wake up, you had better realize that if these Israelites continue to, to grow at this present rate of birth, we're in big trouble. And so kill them. You have civil permission to kill babies. What kind of a country would do that? I don't think I have to go into much detail in this audience for you to know or to convince you that motherhood is under attack in our country. And I would say that in the last 30 years in the United States of America, we have slaughtered thousands, if not millions, of more babies than they did, the Egyptians did in Egypt. Evidently, they were successful at some level because the mother of Moses hid him. So the first three months, she was successful. Motherhood is under attack. We can relate to that, can't we? Culturally, we face the the plague of abortion, and we need to do everything we can. Thankfully, there is a slow turning. 
largely due to ultrasound. When you leave this morning, will you fill up a bottle? Do you know that there is the greatest tool in the last four or five years that has turned the hearts of young women towards their child to not believe the message of the age, the lie from the pit of hell, that their body belongs to them and that that baby is just a piece of tissue. What utter nonsense, giving them license to do murder and in their confusion and in their plight, largely due because of the, promisc the promiscuous culture that we have. Motherhood is also undermined because of promiscuity. But as these local community clinics and next to universities, our universities are slaughterhouses for babies. Next to these universities, these clinics, if they can put out the money, like $150,000, $250,000 for an ultrasound machine, oh, it does wonders. When you give, you help that kind of work. I expect, I, we, when we put the bottles out this morning, we said, is this all there are? And I would expect after the first service, all of those to be gone. And we'll announce at the second service that more are coming. Let's respond to the attack on motherhood in our culture. That's a simple thing to do right there. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to see that not only is motherhood under attack, but motherhood means sacrifice. Do we have some testimonies? Motherhood means sacrifice. Do you notice in the passage that after the baby is born in this culture and all that was happening, she gave birth to the son, she saw that it was a fine child, she had to hide him. There was a sacrifice involved there, wasn't it? But then, she had to get to a place where she could no longer safely hide him in a drawer or under a bed or in a closet when Egyptians came near. But she had to figure out a way to get him out of their home. What a sacrifice. Imagine a three-month-old precious baby boy having to weave this basket. What must have been going through her mind as she took these papyri reeds and wove the basket and pitched it no doubt lining it with some kind of a blanket, putting him perhaps in his favorite little outfit, and then sneaking down to the Nile River and hiding him among the reeds. Older sister Miriam hides, squatting in the reeds, looking. How would you feel if you were the mother? What a sacrifice. We're not called to sacrifice at that level. But there are times when mothers are called to make huge sacrifices, aren't they? I was thinking of the name of a young woman that I wanted to mention publicly today on Mother's Day in tribute to her act of love. Many of you do not know who this individual is. A beautiful young woman named Cheryl Threadgill. Cheryl found out she was pregnant and right after she was pregnant she found out that she had cancer. The doctors wanted to abort her, abort the baby. They said, if you do not abort the baby, you can't, we cannot treat the cancer, and your cancer is going to grow like wildfire because of the state in which your body is right now. And Cheryl refused to have an abortion. She delivered a beautiful baby girl, and just weeks later, we gathered for her funeral, and she passed away. What a sacrifice. 
Most moms aren't called to sacrifice at that level. I was um, thinking of an illustration that is a lot like my mom. There's this kid in math class, and the teacher asked the boy this question. Suppose your mother baked a pie and there were seven of you, five children and mom and dad. What part of the pie would you get? The boy immediately replied, one-sixth. I'm afraid you don't know your fractions, said the teacher. Remember, there are seven of you. Yes, teacher, said the boy, but you don't know my mother. Mother would say she didn't want a piece of pie. Moms, can I encourage your hearts today? It's a given that mom gets the short end of the stick. You pick up more clothes, dirty clothes. You, you get the smallest amount of helping after you've served supper and, or dessert, and there it is. Unless you're like me when you're cooking, and I'm eating the whole time I'm cooking. I figure it'll get sterilized by the flame. Give away my secrets here. Got to check that stuff out, you know? Can I encourage you moms who may be losing heart that this is a season in your life of sacrifice? But it will pay rich dividends. I hope that your motive is love and that you're not growing bitter and short-tempered and impatient with your family. What does love do? Love bears all things. It believes all things. It endures all things. Love motivates a mom to sacrifice. Not only do we see motherhood under attack, and we see that in our own culture, motherhood means sacrifice. We see that the mother of Moses made significant sacrifice. I thought that it was evident in an unwritten way from the passage, number three, that motherhood is a privilege. Motherhood is a privilege. Can I remind you of that? Can we go back to Moses' mother, putting him in that basket, putting him in the reeds, and then Miriam speaks up after Pharaoh's daughter goes down there to the river, and her, her attendants are walking along the bank of the river, just uh, loitering, I guess, while uh, their mistress bathed. The sister of, asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? I suspect this might have been part of the plan. I suspect that that basket was strategically placed in the river at a spot that they had identified where some people might go who would be safe and maybe not kill the baby. Yes, go. And the girl went to the baby's mother. Now picture Miriam running up to the house breathlessly. Mama! We need you to come. This is a nursing mother who has put her mother down at the river, her baby down at the river. Imagine the emotional framework. Physiologically, imagine her response. So her body is prepared and used to feeding, and she's waiting in her kitchen. She's trying to occupy her hands. She's trying not to melt down in fear. And Miriam runs in, Mama, now. Do you think that's not a mother who doesn't know the privilege of being a mother? Whew, off she went. Why? The most important thing in her life was that baby. What a privilege. And moms, can I tell you as your pastor that you are privileged. You don't feel like it. You don't feel appreciated. You feel like you're letting life go by. Can I tell you that it is a lie from the pit of hell that you'll be happier out there in your profession? 
or that that is more important. I'm not saying that that doesn't bring significant satisfaction. I know that there's all kinds of reasons that, that people have to work and so forth. But motherhood is a privilege. Can we turn to a New Testament passage? Will you turn to Titus chapter 2 with me? And can I show you the greatest privilege a mother has? Hebrews, excuse me, Titus, and chapter 2, and look at a few verses here briefly. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then Titus, and chapter 2. And as Titus is giving, as Paul is giving Titus instruction on how to teach and lead women, he gives specific instruction about the older women to teach the younger women so that the young pastor is not teaching young women for obvious reasons. Likewise, verse 3, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teach what, what is good. Now notice, then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Alright, he gives off this list and a lot of wives, young moms here are rolling their eyes. This is, this is counter-cultural. Look what it says. To be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, that's not snippy and snappy, and to be subject to their husbands. That is to come under the authority and the spiritual leadership of your husband in an act of surrender and submission. The husband's duty is to love that wife like Christ loved the church. A lot of young mothers would be a lot happier if their husbands were loving them at that level. And a lot of young mothers would be a lot happier to submit with that kind of love. But you don't get to choose. There's the imperative. There's the directive. But notice why. So that no one will malign the Word of God. The word malign is, is the same word as revile. It's the same word as also a blaspheme. Make fun of. Disregard. Now, what is he saying? Young mothers... Pay attention at home, live orderly, self-controlled lives, keep your homes in order, recognize the privilege of motherhood, and the privilege is that you are sending out a spiritual gospel message with the way you keep your home and the way you love your husband. Has it occurred to you that you teach your children how to love God by the way you demonstrate your love for your husband? If the man is the representative of Christ loving the church, then the wife is the representative of the church loving God, then your children will only love Christ and love their church and love God at the same level that you demonstrate a love and respect for your husband. You're snipping and snotting and carrying on to your husband teaches Total disregard. That's the church disregarding Christ in spiritual terms. But notice the impact. As people watch your home, it is to be a Christ-centered, godly home. Who is the first one to have the heart and the conscience and the mind of their children? The mother or the father? The mother. Who is the first one to touch and to shape and to mold the heart of their children and to point them to Jesus and to teach them their first Bible verses, to pray with them, 
to sing spiritual songs to them as they nurse. It's the mother. Sometimes daddy's right there, but it's the mother. You tell me it's not a privilege. That's right. It's the mother. I'm telling them, Toka. I'm almost out of time, but I'll tell them. It's the mother. Thank you, Toka. What a privilege. What a privilege. Motherhood is under attack. Motherhood means sacrifice. Don't lose heart. Motherhood is a privilege. Did you notice then that she weans him in our story and she gives him away? I see a picture there, number four, that motherhood is time-sensitive. You have such a short window of time with your children. Why would you begrudge it? I cannot believe that Tasha is 26. She was my little three-year-old, jumping off the refrigerator, throwing her up in Christie Lake, up in the air in Christie Lake. 